Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Christiana Ochoa, professor of law at Indiana University, Bloomington. We'll be discussing your article, Deals in the Heartland, which was co-authored with Casey Cook, a law alumna of Indiana University, Bloomington, and Hannah Will, a current IU law student. The article will be published in the Minnesota Law Review, and I'll add a link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Christy, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you so much, Andrew. It's really a pleasure to get to chat with you today. This was a really fascinating ethnographic study about rural wind farming that you use to investigate some implications for deal making, some implications for contract theory. Could you give the listeners a high-level view, a high-level introduction of the study, both the rural wind farming that you and your co-authors examine and some of the implications that you hope to identify for contract theory, for the theory of deal-making? Absolutely. Thank you so much, Andrew. So Deals in the Heartland is born really out of the empirical work that I and my co-authors, when they were working as research assistants rather than as co-authors, have done in prior projects, mainly outside of the United States, and thinking about the ways that natural resource projects do and don't reflect accurately onto renewable energy projects, both in the United States and outside of the United States. This project really focuses just on rural Indiana. We did the fieldwork during the pandemic, and so our travel was a bit restricted. So we really focused on Indiana, and it turns out that was an incredibly fortuitous move. So as you said, this is an article that details the findings of empirical research that we did here in Indiana, exploring how occupants of rural spaces in Indiana and elsewhere have employed legal mechanisms to both welcome and unfortunately more often to reject deals for wind farms in their local communities. The project really focuses on the configuration of where ultimately wind farms have to locate, which is primarily in rural spaces, which means that local communities and rural spaces have a tremendous amount of agency over whether wind energy can grow at the rate that is expected to and needed to grow in the United States. So that's the sort of the premise for the article. What we found was that there is a tremendous amount of resistance to wind energy in the United States for reasons that are covered in the news in popular press and also for reasons that were surprising to us. And the level and organization of that resistance was also fairly surprising to us. So that's the empirical findings that came out of the project. And then with respect to contracts, of course, we were trying to locate the phenomena that we were identifying not just in terms of this particular industry and this particular configuration of rural imperatives versus global and national political imperatives, but also we are trying to locate it within legal theoretical constructs. I'm sure you'll understand why this was appealing to us, but we started to think pretty early on about the ways that these deals, whether they were actual contracts with landowners or deals with communities, were resonant with the really exciting literature that, that really thinks about the ways formal contracts law is is not so useful in tight-knit communities. And of course, these communities that we were researching 
are tight-knit communities. But surprisingly, in those places, the creative innovations that, say, Robert Ellickson or Lise Bernstein or Feldman, when he wrote his article on tuna courts, found the sort of formal mechanisms of contract law and contract conflict resolution were not as useful in those tight-knit communities. What we found was actually quite different, was that in these tight-knit communities, in this context, formal contracts and the process toward a formal contract is, in fact, imperative. Thank you for that introduction to the study. And I want to get to some of the contract theory implications in a bit, but I wonder if you could paint a picture for the listeners of the fieldwork, the empirical study that you did. Uh, Could you describe the communities that you investigated? Who were some of the players that you talked to? What did they want in the context of rural wind farming? Or maybe even more important, what did they not want in the context of rural wind farming? Yeah. So in order to really think about the ways that wind farms are being both accepted and rejected in rural America, and particularly in Indiana, we cataloged a few phenomena initially from our desks in order to first just understand what was going on in the state of Indiana. First, we cataloged for each county in Indiana the presence and absence of wind farms and their dates of construction, the presence, absence, and the content of local ordinances that are designed to attract or prohibit or to place moratorium on wind farm construction in each of the counties in Indiana. And then we also looked for all of the searchable court cases throughout Indiana that had anything to do with wind farms and wind farm construction. That process helped us to identify a set of counties in Indiana that we really thought were important to go out to and to have conversations with people in those locations. And during all of last summer, June to September of 2022, we conducted field work in 11 Indiana counties that we saw as particularly interesting. We conducted over 30 hours of interviews and we talked with anti-wind farm activists, company representatives, county officials, county economic development corporation officers, the sort of the the range of stakeholders that we were able to get our hands on for conversations about the ability of wind farms to get located in the state. And what we found was surprisingly and also quite really disconcertingly is that, and really the reason that it's important is because the phenomenon that we found in Indiana is just one example. Of course, this is happening all over the United States and rural America. What we found was that 30 of Indiana's 92 counties, so almost a third of Indiana's 92 counties have passed ordinances that would be seen as restrictive or prohibitive of wind farms being established in those counties. But of course, not all of those 92 counties are wind energy viable. There are nearly a dozen counties that have outright moratoria and only nine counties remaining in Indiana that appear open to further investment to wind farms in the county. So when you think about the requirement for wind energy and renewable energy generally to grow and grow rapidly in the coming years. The fact that there are so many Indiana counties that are putting up resistance, it should be really concerning for all of us, especially as that reiterates to other states throughout the country. And the conflicts that we found were not just legal conflicts, and we found plenty of those, the conflicts that were primarily based on the ordinances that were being passed in those counties. But what we also found were political conflict, social conflict, the kinds of conflicts that people referred to as tearing at the very fabric of their communities in ways that were irreparable. There were counties where individuals and groups had organized in favor and against wind farms in their community. And that happened years ago. And the community still says that it is not healed. There's been an interesting bit of sociological research on this phenomenon. And what folks are finding is that communities in 
throughout the rural United States are actually being torn apart by the question of whether renewable energy projects should or shouldn't locate in particular counties and communities. These conflicts sound pretty stark in a lot of these communities. I wonder if you could talk about what are the motivations of these conflicts? Of course, some people want to construct these renewable energy projects and others oppose, but what's motivating that? How have the conflicts been mediated in communities where this has been a point of contention? And what's been the role of public actors in the mediation or the deal-making process? The primary motivation driving the conflicts, I would say that they're threefold. On the one hand, and probably the most prevalent complaint that we saw was that communities felt that wind farm operators, when they alight in their county or community, are operating ways that are seen as really disregarding the communities that have located there and been there in some cases for multiple generations. In many instances, we heard stories about wind farm operators that arrived in the county, signed up leases with a number of local landowners, but under non-disclosure agreements. So the local landowners that signed onto agreements weren't able to speak about their participation in a, in a lease agreement or in an option agreement. And once The companies had enough of those leases signed, only then would they go to the counties to get the permission in a public way to get permission for actually establishing a wind farm or doing the research on whether a wind farm was feasible in the county. And so in many instances, communities didn't learn about the possibility of wind farms being established in their midst until very late in the process. And that was seen as both incredibly disrespectful of the communities that had been there for a long time and also very untransparent and nefarious. And just that process, the non-transparent, occlusive, in some instances, concerns were raised about corruption, that process was seen as itself worthy of significant resistance. So that was one, purely a process question of how wind farm operators were engaging with communities was one point of resistance. Another was just the substance of the deals. Most of the deals that we, the landowners that sign on to lease agreements with wind farm operators, they get remuneration. They get compensated for the leases that they sign and for allowing turbines on their land. In some cases, a neighbor might be asked to sign what's called a good neighbor agreement, which predominantly is for the purpose of waiving the protections that the neighbor might otherwise have. And that's called a good neighbor agreement. So they might get paid stipends or leases as well for signing onto good neighbor agreements. And in some cases, though not all cases, the counties also get financial remuneration through economic development agreements. In at least one of the counties, however, the economic development agreement and the funds that were being put into the account through that agreement were being used for maintaining the roads and for increasing internet access. And the community saw that really as just subsidy to the companies themselves because good roads and good internet were are really important to ensuring that the wind farm itself operates smoothly and efficiently. And so the communities are just not seeing a lot of benefit from the wind farms that are being established and constructed in their, really in their viewscape. And the viewscape is really important here because these are rural communities that when you imagine rural bucolic Indiana farmlands, what you don't imagine is the industrial scale wind farms that are being established in some counties here. For communities that are seeing their rural, you call it, viewscape changed into an industrial wind farm, they feel like they're just simply not being compensated for that diminution in their quality of life. 
So there's the substance as well that is really a sore spot and a point of contention. And then it's important, I think, also to acknowledge that once issues like wind farms take on a political dimension, there is organization on one side or the other of that dimension. So either communities will organize against or communities will organize in favor of wind farms. But once you've got a push in one direction, it's pretty common to be able to connect to others in other counties and in other states that have similar positions. And so the result is there's actually quite a lot of force behind the ability to resist wind farms in Indiana and another rural state. And then you ask, who are the mediators in these conflicts? One of the troubles is there's not a lot of mediation in these conflicts. The reason I think that there's so much contention in these conflicts, and they really are seen as very contentious, is that there isn't a lot of space for nuanced positions and nuanced policy proposals. So in a lot of places, the positions have either been pro-wind farms and a lot of push in favor of them, mainly from the wind farm operators and from communities and lobbyists that support them. And then there's, of course, a, a strong push against them. And both sides say that in any given county, either the organizers pro or against are shipping in mobilizers from other counties and even other states to support their very strongly held view that either wind farms should or should not establish in a given location. So one of the problems is there's just not a lot of mediation. In some states, like Indiana, the state legislature has attempted to pass legislation that will systematize, that will make more coherent the regulations that wind farms have to adhere to in order to establish in a given county so that each county is not passing its own local ordinance that creates its own wide variation of possibilities with respect to how tall a turbine could be or how far away from a property line it might be, but rather all counties in the state would operate under the same sets of regulations. So in some ways, the states have tried to act as mediators. Finally, another set of mediators can also be found in economic development corporation officials. Sometimes those officials are working to try to create some conversation between those who are opposed and those that are in favor of wind farms, really trying to, to close the gap and to create a better understanding of the ways that wind farms might be able to benefit local communities. And to try to increase the size of the pie for local communities. And then finally, we did interview representatives from one company that's operating in Indiana that is trying to operate under a different model for how to involve communities at very early moments rather than waiting until very late in the process, which was, as I said, one of the largest complaints that community members had. You alluded earlier in the conversation to some prior literature that this Paper really joins. There's a rich literature of folks who have examined some of these questions about contracting, about governance centered around ethnographic studies. So there's the Robert Ellickson book, Studies of Diamond Markets, Tuna Quartz, as you mentioned. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about where you see this article fitting into that literature. What gaps do you fill in this article and what implications does this article offer for contract theory? Yeah, thanks for asking. So Robert Ellickson is a, what would you say, benchmark of this tremendous work that tries to provide rich empirical descriptions of a way that contracts and formal law operate within tight-knit communities. So he and Lisa Bernstein with her work on diamond markets, as you said, and Eric Feldman with his work on tuna courts have explored the ways that within tight-knit communities, either formal contract doctrine or formal contracts, conflict resolution mechanisms have operated in communities that have a lot of interaction, thick relationships, and many 
points of intersection and many reasons to interact again in the future. In each of those cases, in Ellickson and Bernstein's and Feldman's and other work as well, the observation has been that in those situations, that formal legal mechanisms, they're just not as useful as the social fabric that ties the individuals in those communities together. And so what we expected to find was something similar. We expected to find at least some pieces of those insight present in the work we were doing last summer, that there would be some either shadow of or some thread that they had constructed in their work that we would be able to draw on and to iterate with in our right of our field work. But our field work led us to really quite different observations, and I think for good reason. So rather than a tendency toward informality, the communities that we learned from seem to yearn for much more formal, more transparent contracts and deals that would allow for those deals and relationships to be more durable and more clear going forward. So in the context that we worked in, what we found was that formality actually opens possibilities for these durable relationships inside these tight communities. Because here, unlike in the Feldman and Bernstein and Ellickson examples, the tight communities are trying to get accustomed to the possibility of letting in a very unfamiliar, very, not just unfamiliar in the sense they're not known, but also unfamiliar in the sense that they operate quite differently, unfamiliar actors within their tight-knit communities and trying to contemplate the possibility of letting in those actors for what will be decades-long relationships. So what we found was that actually in order to create sustainable deals for wind farms, companies have to be quite formal. They have to communicate early. They have to be transparent. They have to be respectful. They have to be generous in ways that social community, a social fabric might be able to allow for if the actors were just already actors within the tight-knit community, were already embedded inside the tight-knit community. That's not the case here. And we wanted to make the case for companies to not make the assumption that they can behave as if they're part of community, but rather to really recognize that they are outsiders and need to behave as such. Did you find any examples in your study of companies, these outsiders that are doing, as you say, examples where we have perhaps a happier story of either consensus before wind farms go up or some resolution or conciliation after the fact? And to the extent that you have, or to the extent that you've seen some models, what might those imply or what might those support in terms of recommendations for how rural renewable energy projects might move forward in the future, where we've got these tensions between the tight-knit local community and the outsider that wants to disrupt the status quo in the community. I was really excited. Well into the fieldwork last summer, I came across a company that is trying to operate in western Indiana. The observation, it's a really interesting story, but I'll try to keep it short. Inside the company, there's a public relations officer that, of course, <laughs> identified what she said was the low-hanging fruit on wind farms is gone, that there really are no more counties that want wind farms, that are eager for wind farms, that have low bars for wind farms to be able to establish inside their county boundaries that don't already have them. And so at this point, for wind farm operators, what they're looking at is a set of counties that are on a spectrum from reluctant to extremely reluctant to allow renewable energy projects and wind farms in particular to establish in those locations. And so that's a pretty tough environment to operate in. What she started to do was to look at what she understood to be the critiques 
of the communities that are resistant to wind farms. And the critiques that she observed were very similar to the ones that we observed. And we shared for quite a while the findings of our research and the findings of her PR in-house research. And what she observed was very similar to what we observed, which is that also what I've also already described to you. What was seen as poor process on the part of the wind farm operators was causing initial resistance. She convinced the company that she works for to try to engage communities in a much different way. And so what she's trying to do in this county in western Indiana is similar to what we recommend in our paper. And so those recommendations are more or less as follows. We recommend that companies have to engage communities early, that they have to do so transparently, that they have to do so respectfully, and that the deals that they offer to communities have to be generous, not just to the landowners that are going to have wind turbines actually on their property, but generous to the community as a whole. And importantly, they have to be very responsive to the local conditions and local demands on the ground so that the communities feel that the establishment of wind farms in a particular county is mutually beneficial and is the result of a long-term stable relationship between the company and the county. Now, do we have any examples of wind farms that have actually managed to do that after there's been resistance within a, a county? No, we don't have an example of that. But the hope is that those proposals, both theoretically in a paper like ours or practically in the work that this wind farm operator is doing in Western Indiana, might bear some fruit and might be able to gain some traction. Are there any key takeaways that you would like listeners to have from this interview or from the paper? I think the main takeaway, the most important takeaway, is that the status quo of operation for wind farm operators is reaching really very important and and frightening limit. If wind farm operators continue to operate in the means that they have been, the transition to renewable energy is going to be slower. It's going to be less possible. Then if we don't start to pay close attention to the reasons for conflict over wind farms in rural America and giving it actual space and respect rather than being derisive about those communities or the conflicts that are occurring within them. This is, our inability to do that is affecting not just our ability to move towards renewable energy, but it's also having effects, destructive effects inside rural and local state politics. For example, sociologists of disasters, have started, <laughs> sociologists of disasters, just to give you a sense of how striking this is, have started to turn to questions of the opposition to wind farms in rural communities. And they're likening the conflict inside those local communities as very similar to the what are called corrosive communities that emerge in the wake of major disasters, technological disasters or chemical spills or nuclear contamination. That's what these communities are looking like when they're facing the question of wind farms inside their counties. The effect here is not just the slowness of renewable energy grid, but also further destruction at the core of rural America. So really, the transition to a renewable energy grid, we think, is an opportunity. On the one hand, it's an opportunity to re-engage rural America, to bring it into a central and engaged role in supplying energy to the country, or on the other hand, for the process to continue to be really bad and to further disengage and disenfranchise rural America so that it continues to be even more resistant to global and national policy, in, for example, in favor of renewable energy. And that is both an opportunity, but it's an opportunity for the good or it's an opportunity for further disintegration. Our guest today has been Christiana Ochoa, professor of law at Indiana University Bloomington. 
We've discussed her article, Deals in the Heartland, which was co-authored with Casey Cook, a law alumna of Indiana University Bloomington, and Hannah Will, a current IU law student. The article will be published in the Minnesota Law Review, and I'll add a link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Christy, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you so much, Andrew. It's great to talk with you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. Andrew Jennings.